right. Last week we discussed the moment creation when God looked into the garden where he had placed the pinnacle of his creation and lamented that that man was alone. I told a joke that landed me in the doghouse all week. If you weren't here, you should go listen to it. It's awesome. So before I get too far in, I'd like to make a quick statement about my wife. Esther is my brilliant and beautiful partner, without whom I could do nothing. She always comforts and consoles, never complains or interferes, asks nothing and endures all. I love the way she runs my home, raises my children, loves me, and especially the way she writes the introductions to all my sermons. This morning, we're continuing our series titled, Why Church? In this series, we're looking at the way the world is, uh, primarily because the earliest humans decided to go their own way. When they did this, the world began to fall apart. And when we look back in the scriptures, we find that that breaking happened in four main areas, which we broke down last week. If you're fairly new here and you've never heard me talk about the four broken relationships, you should listen to the sermon from last week, because these four relationships are formative to what it means to be Open Table Community Church. And the reason I opened this morning with the little joke about Esther writing my introductions is because this week we are talking about the relationship between man and himself. It can be difficult to talk about ourselves. Like the statement, I am the humblest person I have ever met. Moses actually wrote that. Moses was the humblest man who ever lived. Or the guy who was so humble the town gave him a medal but quickly took it away because he wore it. It makes us a little uncomfortable to talk about ourselves, unless it doesn't, and then it probably makes everyone else uncomfortable when you talk about yourself. Well, this is why I love the story from Genesis and why I go back there so often. I feel like so much of human nature is revealed in this crazy, really ancient text that is at the very top of the drop-down menu on your Bible app, way back at the beginning of everything, the moment when Adam and Eve decided to go their own way immediately before they had a chance to hide from God or blame each other or even figure out how hard life was going to be now, before they realized anything, they felt this dramatic change. It reads like this. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together and covered themselves. Their eyes were opened, and they felt shame at their nakedness. And this is the human condition, right? Confronted with our true self, no hiding, no adornments, we typically feel shame. We're not comfortable in our own skin. We live in fear that someone else might see us and possibly see through our fig leaves. And usually it's not because we're afraid that they won't like what they see, but it's because we don't like what we see. I mean, if we look at this verse, it doesn't say that they saw the other person's nakedness and asked them to cover up. Because if this passage is indicative of human nature at all, and I think it is, I can tell you for a fact that after eating the fruit, Adam still preferred Eve naked. Think about that for a second. There's the laugh I needed. Thank you. It wasn't that the other person's naked bother, nakedness bothered them. It was that they were no longer connected to themselves. Their own nakedness now bothered them. They felt shame. So they covered up. Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves and the Bible tells us a few verses later that God comes and replaces these fragile coverings with a more permanent covenant covering. It reads like this, And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. 
Incidentally, this is a really significant moment because animals typically don't volunteer their skins while they run to Walmart and get new ones. So it means that something had to die to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. Something had to to die to cover their sin. And this obviously spun off into sacrificial systems that made their way into almost every world religion, including the biblical narrative. Because of the fall, people now hide and death has entered. And the covering comes in all shapes and sizes. We obviously literally cover our nakedness. But it didn't take long before even those coverings were a source of shame, right? How many of us have had perfectly good clothes that do their job, they're utilitarian, they're fine, but we throw them away because we don't like the way we look in them, right? The fig leaves never seem to do what they were supposed to do. Then if we do find that outfit that fits just right, covers the things it's supposed to cover, it accentuates the things it's supposed to accentuate, what do we do? We immediately seek validation. Do these jeans make my butt look good? Right? Come on. It's like that deep inner voice that showed up in the garden is so loud that we beg other people to quiet it. I mean, if we're honest, it's pretty obvious that those of us who are the smallest literal fig leaves, right, the least amount of clothing, don't do it because they don't feel shame like the rest of us do. It usually seems like those people who wear the tiniest fig leaves and dance in halftime shows usually... Usually are seeking that validation. They need other people to tell them they're beautiful. Their nakedness is almost their fig leaf, how they cover that shame voice. And it's obviously that it's not just clothing. Half of us hide behind our personality or our morality. And we figure if we act just right, people will either like us or at least admire us. Then that shame voice will be quiet. Others of us go the opposite route, right? We, we act tough, and we'd say, I'm just being real, I'm just being myself. I don't care if people like me. We push people away for the sake of being real, because if we're vulnerable enough to say, I need people, I want people to love me, and I'm, I feel lonely, and someone rejects us, we don't feel like we can handle that. So we just push them away from the beginning and say, I'm just keeping it real. It's another fig leaf. In fact, today... Maybe more than any other time in history, authenticity, realness, is coming to the front of the cultural dialogue. We want it real. It's all over social media platforms. Hashtags like speak your truth, live in my best life, no filter, self-love, self-care, keeping it real. We're enamored with authenticity right now. I don't know how many of you know who Brene Brown is, but she's this researcher, this sociologist who is... Studying wholehearted living, she wanted to know what, it, what was the secret of these people who seemed to live wholehearted, happy lives. And from a completely statistical social science vantage point, she found one barrier to wholehearted living, something that showed up in her research over and over and over again. And because the research was so clear, her entire field changed, and she's now known as the premier shame researcher in the country, probably in the world. Brene Brown wasn't coming at this because of Genesis 3-7. She didn't come at this knowing that shame was this huge thing that entered the human story. She was just doing the science and found shame at the top of it. She was hoping to find like a seven-step program to happy, wholehearted living. And instead, she decided that 
If she wanted to know anything about wholehearted living, she had to study shame. Shame is huge in the hearts of humans. And it all started the second Adam and Eve ignored God's guidelines. The relationship between Adam and himself, Eve and herself, was broken. And the church has done a pretty terrible job of bringing redemption to that relationship. Probably because we work so hard on the work that Jesus did for our sins, right? We focus so hard on our sins. We talked about the fact last week that Jesus died for our sins and gave us peace with God. We namely talked about it from the vantage point of Jeremiah 31, where Jeremiah talks about this new covenant. And one of the key points of this new covenant said, I will forgive their wickedness and will never again remember their sins. Usually in church, we talk about the work that Jesus did for our sins. But look back at what's going on in Adam when he fell. You don't really see it until God showed up. God says this, Then the Lord, called, uh, the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied. I heard you were walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. I was afraid because I was naked. The wording here is interesting, because Adam doesn't say, I heard you walking in the garden, and I hid. I was afraid because I had sinned. Or I was afraid because I would eaten the apple. Or I was afraid because I broke the one and only rule you gave me. He didn't say any of that. He says, I was afraid because I was naked. You don't see the power of it till the next verse because God says, Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked, Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? God has to tell Adam that the shame he's feeling is, a, is, is attached to breaking the rules. All Adam knows is he doesn't like who he is. That's all he knows. He didn't hide because he was a sinner. He hid because his relationship with himself had broken. By the way, have you ever wanted to play God in this story? Have you ever been talking to somebody who's just miserable? Their life is miserable and they have no idea why. And you want to say the God line, like, did you eat of the fruit you weren't supposed to eat? Like, have you ever had that moment when you can see from where you are exactly why they're miserable and unhappy and, and don't like themselves, but they can't see it? That's what happens here. All Adam knows is he's naked. He doesn't like it. I don't like what I see. I'm not, I'm not comfortable with who I am. And God has to tell him why. When God shows up, I don't think Adam had made the connection yet. Let's just say that Adam and Eve ate the fruit on a Tuesday. All Adam knows is on Monday, I'm me and I'm fine. And now on Tuesday, I'm me and I don't like it. I feel shame. God's the one that reveals that it's because of sin. The church hasn't done a great job of handling that discrepancy. We focus so hard on sin that we, that we miss the broken relationship with the self. And we do it one of two ways. We deal with sin one of two ways. We either say, don't do this, don't do that, definitely don't do this. We give people a list. Or we say, God has forgiven your sins. They're, they're as far as the east is from the west. He knows your sins no more. And we stop there. So people either come away and go, so I, you gave me this list and I did this list. I'm working hard to, to live the way you told me I should live, and I still don't like myself. Or they go, I celebrate the fact every day that Jesus has forgiven my sins and my sins are gone and I don't have to worry about them anymore. I still don't like myself. Because nobody tells us how to repair that broken relationship. We're still terrified 
of being real lest someone judge us. And if we're honest, it's, it's right to be terrified. No one will punish you faster for being yourself than the church. So we act fake because we want to be accepted. We don't dare let our fig leaf down. Which means you can have your sins forgiven and know that they're forgiven and still live in shame and not have a redeemed relationship with yourself. The church has worked for 2,000 years to bring redemption to the broken relationship between God and humans. But we haven't always done good at the relationship between humans and themselves. Which begs the question, what would it look like to have a healthy relationship to ourselves? Before we can understand that, let's look at the nature of this breaking. Because the thing that Adam had a problem with wasn't what he had done. We just talked about this. God made Adam naked on Monday. Adam was fine with that nakedness. And then on Tuesday, because of sin, Adam no longer likes the way God made him. Adam's problem isn't with what he's done. It's with who he is. Which gives us a little bit closer to what a redeemed relationship might look like. Because it's clear that the shame we struggle with, the same shame that Brene Brown uncovered and found so powerful in the lives of everybody she surveyed, has little to do with what we've done. Shame is about who we are. Guilt is about what we've done, and that can be useful. Shame is about who you are, and it's always destructive. One of my favorite pictures of what it might look like to find redemption for both what we've done and who we are is found in Ephesians 2. It reads like this, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift of God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. It was the very first verse I ever memorized. I learned it. You have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My very first verse I committed to memory. But here's the grace that saves us. This redemption from what we've done. It's the gift. It's our peace with God. It's dependent on it. This, this work that Jesus did for us. This is the redeemed relationship with God. But the next verse tells us, shows us where the real magic happens. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. We are his masterpiece. We are the art that was created by the most amazing artist ever. We are God's masterpiece. Here's what we usually do. God comes walking in the room, usually in the form of his people, the church, and we hide. We cover up. And if the church says, why are you hiding? You know what we say? I was hiding because I am not a masterpiece. I don't want anyone to see this art because it's not good. God made a mess out of this one. And what God would say in that moment is, who told you you're not a masterpiece? Who told you you were naked? If Paul's right in Ephesians 2, because of the work Jesus did for us, we have peace with God. You can do nothing to earn it. And because of that same work, 
you are a masterpiece. You are the exact right person to do the things that God has laid out for you to do. And if your answer is, but I still screw up all the time, I'd say, who said anything about what you do? I'm talking about who you are. And you are the exact right person to do the work God has for you. And I love that little phrase, so we can do the things he planned for us long ago. It sounds like a throwback to that original design. God planned a bunch of stuff for humans to do, and things got really, really messed up. But because of the work of Jesus, Paul tells us that you are perfect. You are the per- that doesn't mean you act perfectly. It just means you are the perfect person for the work God has for you. You fit perfectly. So Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 are about that fixed relationship between God and his people, that relationship that was broken but is redeemed in Christ. But God saved you by his grace when you believed. But verse 10 is not about that relationship at all. It's about the relationship between you and you. You are God's masterpiece. How dare we hide? And here's what I believe. I don't think you have any chance of doing the things God has planned for you to do if you don't believe you are his masterpiece. I'm going to say that again. I don't think you have any chance of doing the things he planned for you to do long ago if you don't believe that he's your masterpiece. And this is why redeeming this broken relationship between you and yourself is so important. We might be tempted to think that the only truly important thing is to redeem the relationship between us and God, right? Then we go to heaven and we can spend eternity fixing our relationship with ourselves if we want to. Except that he has work for us to do here. And if you walk around with this broken idea of yourself and you feel like you're never right and you're never good enough and, and you're never what God needs and wants, then how can you ever do the work he's given us to do here? If we don't believe we are God's masterpiece, we don't have any chance of doing the good works he's laid out for us long ago. So how do we respond to this? Standing naked is difficult. And obviously I'm not just talking about not having clothes on. Some people find that easier than others. Funny and embarrassing story. <laughs> you ready for a funny, funny and embarrassing story? So at Esther's, at Esther's, at, at Esther's bridal shower, all the women were sitting around telling their wedding night stories. And they all prepped her for, she, they were like, there's this terrible ritual where you're supposed to go in the bathroom, get yourself all dolled up, and while you're in there getting yourself all dolled up, your husband is going to get under the covers and hide himself, and you have to make that stroll across the bedroom, looking the way you look while he hides. And they all went around the room. Every single woman confirmed it. Yeah, that's what my husband, that's what my husband, that's what my husband did. So it's our wedding night. Esther goes off in the bedroom. She gets all dolled up. She comes out, and I'm standing buck naked. To which she busted up laughing, which is not the response you're looking for in that moment. 
It's because I went so opposite from what she was expecting. I'm, I'm obviously talking about being authentic, being who we are. Sometimes it's even more difficult to let other people be who they are. As much as we say we want authenticity, we generally hide from nakedness every bit as much as Adam did. The truth is we don't know what to do with shame. The church hasn't handled it well. For the most part, I think the church has actually leveraged shame to gain power. It's like we see people come preloaded with this shame in them, and we feel like we can lean on that just a little bit. We can get people to do all kinds of stuff. We can get a lot more control if we just push on that shame button. There's a famous story about a woman who was talking to someone. I wish I could place it. I kind of hunted for it. couldn't find it. I think it's Philip Yancey, but it might be Brennan Manning. I can't remember. This woman who had done some terrible things was telling somebody about it. This man, I think he was a journalist. She had done horrible things, including like selling her daughter to get some money to survive. And the man very compassionately asked, you ever try going to church? And with all honesty and sincerity, she looked at him confused and said, why would I do that? I already felt bad about myself. One of the reasons we focus so hard on all four broken relationships is because of stories like that. We have to do better. If we don't send people away from church believing in their guts that they are God's masterpiece, and we did something wrong. Or at least we aren't doing enough. So how do we work to redeem this relationship? At Open Table, that starts with authenticity. And honestly, I, I wish there wasn't so much stigma around the word nakedness because I think it's actually a better word. It, it captures the word better because naked comes with vulnerability. We assume authenticity means being vulnerable, but some people will use partial authenticity as a new fig leaf. If I, if I show certain parts of myself, I can keep the parts I want hidden. I tend to do this sometimes. But naked captures it better because being naked is both naturally and metaphorically vulnerable. Go running through the woods sometime at a full sprint butt naked and see if you don't feel like your skin is very, very vulnerable. Maybe way out in the country somewhere where there's no people if you're going to try that. But the vulnerability is what makes authenticity difficult. What if I'm rejected? What if someone ratifies the shame that I feel? What if they judge me? This is why I taught on the relationship with God first even though it falls second chronologically in the story, we have to start by knowing God loves us and accepts us. That has to be the root of everything. This is huge because to be truly known and not truly loved is our greatest fear. That someone might know us and not love us. To be loved but not truly known is meaningless, right? When someone loves us but they don't know us, that means nothing. But to be both 
fully known and truly loved is every heart's desire to be naked and unashamed. If we haven't believed that God fully knows us and truly loves us, we don't stand a chance at the authenticity we want between people. And personally, I I don't see how we have any chance but to believe it. I'm a linear thinker. I can't help but think of a true statement and then whatever true statement naturally follows that true statement. And my wife's an eclectic thinker, so she just grabs random true statements and I always go nuts, like, you can't believe both of those. They're mutually exclusive. She's like, well, I do. Years ago, I tried to give up church, like, madly, passionately in love with Jesus, but the people drove me nuts. So I tried to kind of walk away from church for a while. I felt like people had ruined it. It was so far off base. It was no longer worthy of being associated with. Except then my logic fell apart. Because I realized I was in love with a Jesus that I saw outlined in Scripture, described in Scripture. And I only had this Scripture because a group of people who were following God chose to write stuff down. And another group of people decided to collect and compile those writings. And those people were no different than us in this room. And I found this thing where to believe in the Jesus outlined in Scripture as the Son of God who was outlined in Scripture, I had to believe in the people who he used. So to believe in Jesus but not believe in the church didn't make any logical sense. If I'm honest, this is a hard sermon for me because I struggle with shame. This sermon was like sitting in front of a mirror all week, which I do not do often. I stay away from mirrors. I believe with all my heart that God loves me and I believe in the work Jesus did for me. I believe I have peace with God, but that doesn't mean I always like me. It doesn't mean I'm comfortable in my own skin. I climbed into bed 2 o'clock in the morning one night this week after struggling with this sermon for several hours. And Esther woke up when I was getting in bed, and I curled up next to her and said, I always feel like a hypocrite when I preach because I have to tell people to do things I'm not good at. That's what it means to teach the Bible. But rarely do I feel like an outright fraud. And this one tends to make me feel like a fraud. How can I tell people to love themselves if I don't love myself? But here's what the logic did to me. God saved you by his grace when you believed. How can you believe that God saved you by his grace when you believed and not believe you are his masterpiece. It's one verse away for crying out loud. It would be completely illogical to say, I wholeheartedly believe verse 8, but not verse 10. They come together. We have to be continually reminded. And we have to continually remind each other that we are God's masterpiece. We are the exact person that is needed to do the work that God has sent us to do. That person you look up to, that one that you wish you could be, could not do your job. They would suck at it. They would fail. Because they weren't created for it. Only you were created for the work that God has for you. You are God's masterpiece. But if we have any hope of 
people learning to believe that. We have to work hard to create a space for people to be authentic. It's hard to believe you're God's masterpiece when you come to a place where you're expected to cover up. You can't just say you want authenticity and not create a space for it. That's like going to the desert of Arizona where it's 120 degrees and the sun blazing and going, I'm fine if you want to be naked. Granted, your skin is going to blister off your body. It's not a safe environment for that, but I'm okay with it. Sometimes that's what church is like. We're, we're fine with you being authentic. But the second you are, we're going to burn the skin off your body. One thing to say we're fine with authenticity. It's another thing to create a safe place for it. We have to let people be themselves. And that takes maturity. That's difficult. For instance, I used to give this speech every once in a while. I haven't done it for a couple years, but we have people in our congregation that drink alcohol. We have other people that absolutely do not. There's times we have church-type functions, and some people drink and some people don't. That creates a tension. It takes a maturity to go, I'm okay with you being you and me being me. And me not judging you as you live out your authenticity. The church has not always done great at this. And if I'm honest, that's an easy one. That's actually a pretty easy one. It gets way harder from there. I love to cuss. <laughs> I just do. In my opinion, there's nothing more beautiful than a perfectly timed cuss word. I just love them. And I can't believe that God is into counting vowels. If I hit my thumb with a hammer, I can't see God going, ha, you use the I instead of the double O. That's ten points off. And I know how to use discretion, and I know how to be appropriate, but if you hang out with me long enough, you're going to hear some adult language. If you hang out with me really long, you'll start to notice the twinkle in my eye. My kids always catch it now. That says I'm about to use some adult language. I get a twinkle apparently. Every time it's coming, my kids go, Dad, like before it even happens. But someday you're going to hear me cuss, and you'll have a choice to make. Do I let Pastor Chris be himself? Or do I judge? And that's still an easy one. For me, I'd rather know that I'm dealing with somebody as they are than have them hide. I, uh, Esther recently bought some of that activated charcoal toothpaste. Have you guys ever seen that? It's like black. Anybody used it? Like raise a hand. Yeah, a few of you. I noticed a funny thing with this activated charcoal toothpaste. I'm brushing my teeth like I normally would. I go to spit, and it goes. We have a white sink. It goes everywhere. I had no clue how bad the splatter was. Like, suddenly there's just, just black splatters all over the entire sink from one spit. I went back to the white toothpaste. I don't like the way the black stuff splatters. Most of us would prefer the white toothpaste. We, we just don't want to know where it goes. We'd rather not see it. When we deal with people, we'd rather just, I just don't, I don't want to see your yuck. I don't want to know who you are. Just show me the church self. That's, that's all I really want to see. That doesn't mean there's not spit all over the sink. I'd rather know what's there. 
Bottom line is we have to create a space where people can be themselves. And that brings tension into your world. It does. And you have to learn to live with that tension. Because nine out of ten times, if someone offends you and you want them to either stop or leave, you're the problem in that scenario and not them. Read any story that Jesus is in. Find the sinner and find the religious person and try to figure out which one's the protagonist and which one's the antagonist. Almost every time Jesus is lining up with the sinner. When someone walks in this room and they're not acting the way you think they should act at church, be real careful. If Jesus were standing there, you'd probably be standing on the wrong, wrong side of the story. We live in a world that has no idea what to do with shame. We self-medicate. We numb video games, social media. We overwork. We turn ourselves into human doings instead of human beings. All because we don't know how to be with ourselves. We don't like ourselves. The church absolutely has to step in and remind people that they are God's masterpiece. And then follow that up by allowing them to be fully known and truly loved. Let's go to the table. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you came and allowed yourself to be broken for us. You came knowing who we are. Your word says that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. Fully knew us. And yet you fully loved us enough to take our place. Open our eyes to that first, that we are both fully known and fully loved. And then help us, oh God, help us to show that grace to others. Bury into our guts that we are your masterpiece. Created specifically to do the work you have for us. Nobody else could do it. We're the perfect fit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.